Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is a podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience, and today we bring you part two of our profile on the late, great Pete Newell. When I finished our episode last week, I mentioned that Pete Newell is responsible for refining and popularizing pressure defense, full-court defense, and the idea of weak side help on defense. His teams in the 1940s and 1950s were known for suffocating their opponents. Every university coach in the country knew that they were in for a long night when they had to play a Pete Newell team. It was like playing against Piranha. They were everywhere. A lot of guys that had to play against Newell swear that he put seven defenders on the floor. Not really, but you understand what I'm getting at. But the other thing that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned is that Newell is not just a defensive genius. His offense was equally potent. He believed in reverse action. Even today, many of his former players will joke about what to do in certain situations, and they will all say, reverse action. So let me give you a very high overview of reverse action. Very simply, when a team is going into their half-court set, they will move the ball to the left or right side of the basket, making that side the strong side. Now, the strong side is the side that attracts the defense because that is where the ball is. The strong side tends to get a bit crowded with at least three defenders. So the offense then quickly swings the ball to a player typically situated on the weak side elbow for a quick jump shot or possibly run a quick pick and roll or a pick and pop before the defense can recover. Pete Newell loved that reverse action as it often led to easy baskets. Basically, you lure the defense to go heavy on one side of the court and then quickly pass the ball to the weak side for a quick attack where ideally there is lots of spacing. Anyway, as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, Pete Newell truly was a genius when it comes to basketball. He was an absolute master of the X's and O's. So, a year after he won the NIT championship with the University of San Francisco, he was hired away by Michigan State University. This was the summer of 1950. He won the national championship in 1949 on a budget made up of loose change and a gum wrapper. So, the good folks at Michigan State wondered, what Newell could do with a big school budget made up of a stockpile of gold bricks. Newell was kind of wondering the same thing. He was excited about the opportunity to coach at a school that actually had its own gym on campus and much better facilities than he had previously. He stayed at Michigan State for four years and did some very good things as a coach, but could not win the Big Ten Conference or make a serious run for the national championship. He also hated the snow and the cold winters. He was a California guy through and through, and I can relate to that. 
I'm a California guy too, even though I don't live there anymore. So after four years at Michigan State, a new job opened up at the University of California and he jumped at it. Now, this was specifically the University of California at Berkeley, which is located in the San Francisco Bay Area, because technically UCLA is also part of the University of California but at Los Angeles. There is also UC Irvine, UC Santa Barbara, UC Davis, and many more University of California campuses. They are all part of the same university system, but Berkeley gets to be called just the University of California because it was the original campus within that system. Now, when I was at university, I used to joke that athletes went to Cal, as it is commonly known in athletic circles, but that regular students went to Berkeley as it is commonly known in academic circles. I have two former roommates who were Berkeley graduates and a former high school teammate who played at Cal. It's the same school, just two different names. Anyway, now that Pete Newell was at Cal, he was going to start building up his program, and he arrived at Cal in the fall of 1954. It took a while to build up the program, although the team improved immediately just due to Newell's incredible coaching skill. But what he now needed was horses to help run his offense and defense. But recruiting back then was not what it is now. Back then, you could not just pull up YouTube videos to check out the highlights of a player that you were interested in. There was no film or video on anybody. Coaches had to develop a network of contacts who could go and see a player in person and then report back. A coach had to trust the word of the members of his network. It took a few years as he built his team towards the 1959 NCAA championship, and he won that championship with guys that he never even recruited. That is how Newell got the reputation as a guy who could win with a bunch of nobodies, because he was that good at coaching. Now, one of his five starters for that 1959 championship was Bill McClintock. He was an average high school player from Wisconsin who enlisted in the Marines out of high school. And after three years of service, he was playing in an adult recreation league in Milwaukee when one of Newell's contacts spotted him and suggested that he would be perfect for Newell's reverse action offense. The guy was six foot three, overweight, and already balding but he was a ferocious rebounder. From just one letter in the mail, McClintock paid his own way to California and played at Monterey Junior College in order to get his academics in order before transferring to Cal. McClintock did all of this on his own because he desperately wanted to play college ball and get a degree. Now, Bob Dalton was another forward for Newell. Dalton had actually gone to Cal to play football, but was relegated to being the backup quarterback. Well, every athlete just wants to play. Nobody wants to be the backup. So he showed up for basketball tryouts and made the team. And Dalton was good. He could bring the ball up and he understood the nuances of the reverse action that Newell wanted to play. Dalton was a gift that just landed in Newell's lap. Now, Al Buck was a guard that had originally signed on to play at the University of Southern California, or USC. Now, Buck happened to be Jewish, and the coaches at USC told him that he could still be on the team, but they probably would not play a whole lot because of his Jewish faith. Well, long story short, he dropped out of USC and enrolled at Cal. Again, another gift that just fell into Newell's lap. And Denny Fitzpatrick was another guard who came out of Newport Beach in Southern California and was playing at Orange Coast Junior College. The coach at Orange Coast, being a personal friend of P. Newell, just sent Fitzpatrick to Cal after he played his two years at junior college. The coach contacted Newell and told him about this fantastic guard that he was sending his way. Again, another gift that just landed in Newell's lap. The fifth starter was Daryl Imhoff. 
One day, Newell got a call at his office from a woman who was asking Newell for some help with some housing arrangements for her nephew who had just enrolled at Cal. Well, Newell said that she should talk to campus housing, not the basketball coach. Well, she replied that her nephew planned on trying out for the basketball team, and she figured that the best person to talk to was the basketball coach, because the standard beds in the dorm rooms were just not long enough for her nephew. So Newell naturally asked, well, how tall is your nephew? And she said, Oh, he's six foot nine, and he's really excited for tryouts. Well, Newell took care of that housing and the bed situation himself. Imhoff ended up playing in the NBA for 12 years and made an all-star game. That was like manna from heaven. All of these solid players just ending up at Cal without any of them being recruited. Those were the five starters that won the 1959 NCAA championship for Cal. Now, a year later in 1960, the Cal Bears returned to the national championship game where they played Ohio State University. The coach at Ohio State was Fred Taylor, and he was a Newell disciple. In fact, Newell had previously taught Taylor all of the ins and outs of the pressure defense, and Newell loved to teach. He just wanted to see the game elevated. If another coach approached him and asked about his plays or his approach, he was happy to share all of his knowledge with anyone who asked. His whole philosophy was to share knowledge because that is what was good for the game. My word. And if I can pause for a second, I absolutely love that. He only wanted what was good for the game of basketball. I mean, I want to start calling him St. Peter of Newell because of his impact on the game. Anyway, in that championship game in 1960, Fred Taylor put a full court press on Pete Newell's team and Ohio State walked away with the trophy. I mean, the sheer irony of losing to a team that used a Pete Newell defense. Well, right after that game, Pete Newell retired from coaching at Cal. The stress of it was just too much for him. You see, Newell could not eat on the day before a game or the day of the game because he was just too nervous. He guzzled gallons of coffee and the caffeine did not help his nerves. And he chain smoked up to four packs per day. His health was taking a very serious toll from coaching and he had to quit basically to save his own life. The game that he loved so much was literally killing him. Now, this is a good place to take a break and I will be right back with the next chapter in Pete Newell's life. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hello, sports history fans. 
I'm Ross from the podcast Pigskin Tales. You're about to jump into another thrilling sports history moment, but first, let's dive into today's sponsor, just in time for the holiday season. Introducing Art of Words, the brainchild of word artist Dan Duffy from Philadelphia. Dan meticulously crafts stunning images by handwriting relevant words from some of the greatest sports moments in time. These unique budget-friendly illustrations are the perfect gift, sparking cherished memories and capturing hearts. Choose from city skylines, sports, history, and musicians to find a piece for everyone. And here's the exciting part. For that sports fanatic in your life, gift them a piece of their favorite team or player's history. Art of Words tells a compelling story. Explore collegiate stadiums, each meticulously crafted with every football victory etched into words. Or venture into baseball stadiums, handwritten with every player from the team's illustrious history. My favorite on the site is Bryce Harper 2021 MVP year. Because I'm a big stats guy, I think that's one of the coolest things ever. Check it out! Don't wait! Order a print today for yourself and your loved one this holiday season. Transform your wall into a gallery of captivating art and surprise your family and friends with a print of their own. Use code SHN15 at artofwords.com for a 15% discount on your order in November and December. Visit Art of Words, where words magically transform into stunning art, evoking cherished memories and touching the hearts of those who you care about. Again, use the code SHN15 for 15% off at artofwords.com. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with our profile on Pete Newell. When we left off, Pete Newell had resigned from the University of California. The job of coaching was just too stressful for Newell. However, Cal kept Newell on as the new athletic director. He was now in a completely administrative role, but still involved in sports. Now, here is a weird twist. Even though he had resigned from coaching for the Cal Bears in the spring of 1960, he was still offered the opportunity to coach the United States Olympic team at the Rome Olympics, and he just could not pass up that opportunity. Now, we did a more complete story on the 1960 Olympic team. It is episode 121 if you want to go back and check that out. So I'll give you the short version of the story here. For that team, Pete Newell had Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, Jerry Lucas, Daryl Imhoff, Walt Bellamy, and Bob Boozer. That is as stacked of an Olympic team as there is on this side of the 1992 Dream Team. Using Newell's pressure defense as well as his reverse action, and more importantly, with a bunch of serious horses to run it, Team USA demolished the Olympic tournament, winning their games by an average margin of 42 points. The closest that any team got to them was the Soviets, who lost by only 24 points. When the summer was over, it was time to start his new job as the Cal Athletic Director, and he served in that role for eight years. By 1968, it was time for him to move on again. The campus at the University of California at Berkeley was ground zero for political activism and protests. The Vietnam War was going on and the United States was losing thousands of young men in a war that relatively few Americans understood. There was also the civil rights movement going on. The hippie movement was in full force. America was really going through a social and political upheaval in the 1960s, and much of that activity was happening at the campus of Berkeley. Now, it became difficult for 
for Newell to walk across campus without running into a protest that sometimes got out of hand and could become violent. In one situation, Newell's wife and children were coming out of a store near campus and found themselves in the middle of a protest led by the political group called the Black Panthers from nearby Oakland. The protest had gotten out of control and fights were breaking out between the Black Panthers and some white students. Florence Newell was naturally worried about the safety of her children. And then suddenly, a couple of Black Panthers rushed towards the family. Mrs. Newell was absolutely terrified about what was about to happen. The Panthers, however, gently wrapped their arms around the family and said, Mrs. Newell, what are you doing here? We need to get you to safety. We will walk you home. And she had no idea who these guys were, but they knew who she was, and out of their respect for Coach Newell, they escorted Mrs. Newell and her kids back to their house a few blocks away. Now, at the time, the athletic department practically fell off the radar at the university. Considering what was going on politically, sports at Cal just did not matter to many people anymore. Newell knew that it was time for him to leave for better opportunities, and he accepted the offer from the San Diego Rockets of the NBA to become their general manager. A couple of years into that role in 1970, the Rockets had the second pick in the entire draft. Now, Detroit had already taken Bob Lanier with the first pick. Now, it was Newell's turn on the clock. Pistol Pete Maravich was available, but Newell took Rudy Tomjanovich from the University of Michigan. Maravich went with the third pick to Atlanta, but Newell never regretted making that pick. He just did not think that Maravich's playing style could lead to a championship. Now, I cannot argue with the man. Pistol Pete is one of the most dynamic scorers of all time, but his style was challenging to build a championship team around. Now, a couple of years later in 1972, the Rockets decided to relocate to Houston and Newell was not interested in going with them. He loved California and did not want to leave. And it also turned out that the general manager position with the LA Lakers had just opened up and he slid over and took that job just a couple of hours north. Now, Pete Newell is the guy who orchestrated the trade that brought Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to the Lakers from the Milwaukee Bucks. Newell was personal friends with Bucks general manager Wayne Embry, and they cordially worked out a deal. While Newell did not stick around to see the fruits of his labor, Kareem would help bring five championships to the Lakers, and I would say the Lakers won that trade. Newell left the Lakers in 1976 and began to develop his big man camp, where he would work with college and NBA players on their low post skills, both offensively and defensively. Newell always kept his hands in basketball, and just to fill in some free time, he went over to Japan and coached their women's national team and really developed it into something special. He also consulted for the Japanese men's national team, and for his efforts, he was awarded a medal called the Order of the Sacred Treasure. It was presented to him directly by Emperor Hirohito. Now, back then, he was almost as famous in Japan as he was in the United States. Now, this is where we begin to wrap this up. Pete Newell had about three lifetimes worth of experiences in basketball. He is an absolute master of his craft and had so much to offer. He poured so much of himself into thousands of players over the year. His impact on the game with his defensive principles is still felt today. So anytime you see a team playing pressure defense or full court defense, remember, Pete Newell was the guy who refined that strategy and popularized it. He stayed active in basketball well into the 1990s. Now, sadly, he passed away back in 2008 at the age of 93. Now, if you were ever to build a Mount Rushmore of basketball coaches, you could make a very good argument for putting Pete Newell up there. 
Now, let me finish with a longer quote by the late Hall of Fame coach, Bob Knight. Quote, I'm not sure I've ever been around anyone that I genuinely liked as much as Pete. There's a tremendous unseen and unspoken confidence, almost arrogance about Pete when it comes to basketball. He just knows that he understands the game better than anybody. And I really like that. In all of sport, I think Pete is the least known outstanding figure there is. He was at his best at a time when the media coverage was nothing like it is now. Just imagine if he won the NCAA title today and then went back to the title game the following year and then coached the Olympic team. Well, he would be at the forefront of everything." Unquote. I totally agree with Coach Knight. Well, that is it for our profile on the great P. Newell. Join us next time when we share the story of the only player to win NBA Finals MVP while playing for the losing team. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other Sports History podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.